For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, he's... His voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful and receive a kingdom, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we need you this morning. I I know what I'm planning to say, but uh, without you, that is of no use. We need your spirit to open our eyes and open our ears to see Jesus this morning. Would you do that? It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I personally can't think of anything that would take more endurance, more resolve, more faithfulness than climbing to the top of Mount Everest. It's even become kind of a shorthand for some dream or some goal that seems unattainable what is your Everest? Because it's not just the imposing mountain itself, but it's the training and the conditioning, the years that go into it, the physical toll, the psychological toll. If you just Google the recommended training for climbing Mount Everest, it is unbelievable. But people do it. You may know the name George Mallory. He was an English mountaineer who tried to climb Everest three different times. And you may know that name because when he was asked why, why do you want to climb Mount Everest, he famously answered, because it's there. That's a great quote, but it's a little unsatisfying, I think, uh, in light of everything he had to endure. That answer doesn't really hold up. When a letter to his wife, we get a better picture of what drove him to do this. He wrote to her, he said, Dearest, you must know that the spur to do my best is you and you again. I want more than anything to prove worthy of you. Now, only something like that, proving that our small lives are worth something by attaching them to something 
much bigger than ourselves. Only something like that can really drive you to endure. And Hebrews has been saying, don't give up. Endure, remain faithful. But we know that in the midst of life, trials, persecution, just living day in and day out, that those words don't really hold up. And so the author brings his argument to a head here, and he says, here is how you can endure. Because you have been attached to something unimaginably big, the kingdom of God. And you can endure because this kingdom is a kingdom of gracious presence and of glorious permanence. So let's look at both of those things this morning. A kingdom of gracious presence and of glorious permanence. So first, a kingdom of gracious presence. <clears throat> In these verses, the author gives us a comparison, and the scene was so familiar, so embedded in the faith of the people that he doesn't even mention it by name. He just says, you have, come, you have not come to what may be touched. And then he piles on seven descriptions. What may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice. Now maybe you hear that and you know what he's talking about. They certainly would have known. He's referring to Mount Sinai. To when God's presence descended on the mountain, when he spoke to Moses, when he gave them the Ten Commandments. We read in Exodus 19 that God descended on Sinai in fire. He surrounded the mountain in clouds and he spoke to Moses in thunder. God was moving closer. His desire was to be with his people, but there's a big problem. Ever since the garden, sin has been sending us out of the presence of God. We are at our core in opposition to God. We're like a magnet turned the wrong way. And when another magnet moves towards it, the natural response is to move away. And so as God moves forward onto the mountain, the people shrink back in fear. It says they tremble. Even Moses trembled and they begged Moses, please don't ever let God talk to us like that again. They couldn't bear his holiness. His presence was too dangerous. If an animal even grazed against the mountain, they had to stone it because it had contracted so much of God's holiness that it would destroy them. And so here's what God does. He says, Moses, make me a box, an ark, and place the Ten Commandments inside this ark and seal it with a lid called the mercy seat Make it of solid gold with two angels on it, carved one on one end and one on the other. And then build a tent or a tabernacle and separate off a little room in that tabernacle with curtains and put the ark behind that curtain. And only the high priest can come into the most holy place and there I will meet with you. And every day... Have priests come into the tabernacle and offer sacrifices to me. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, just you, the high priest, enter in before the ark, kill an animal without blemish, and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat 
of the Ark of the Covenant. And here is what all of this symbolized. The people's disobedience to the law which was inside the Ark was covered. And God's justice that demanded payment for sin was satisfied. And this was how God was going to remain in the presence of his people. But Hebrews has been really clear, especially in chapter 9. This was not a perfect system. For one, it was really restrictive. Only the high priest had this intimate access to the presence of God. But it was also insufficient. This had to happen year after year after year, day after day, offering sacrifices in the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews says, could never satisfy God's holiness. But, Hebrews says, something has changed. You have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, to the assembly of the firstborn, to God the judge, to the spirits of the righteous, to Jesus, to the sprinkled blood. And I'll give you just one guess how many different ways he just described that. Seven. The biblical number of completion, of perfection. This heavenly Jerusalem, this spiritual Zion is the complete fulfillment of Sinai. You see, Zion was the name of a hill that David had conquered and he put the ark on that hill. And then when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the ark and the tabernacle were moved into the temple in Jerusalem and the whole city became referred to as Zion. Throughout the Old Testament, Zion becomes shorthand for God's people. The prophets begin referring to a heavenly Zion. The New Testament picks up this name Zion and applies it to the kingdom of God, and then Jesus comes, saying the kingdom of God is at hand because God himself has come to dwell, literally tabernacle among us. And this is why Hebrews says you can endure. Because in Jesus, we are offered what we cannot get anywhere else. Unrestricted presence. If you peel back the layers on our fears and our pain, and our frustration, I think we would find we just want someone to be with us. No restrictions, no demands. UCLA just did a study <clears throat> on youth and young adults uh, and what they watch. And what they found is that more than wanting to watch shows and movies about sex or romance, they want to watch shows about friendship. We're facing an epidemic of loneliness, and this study showed that young people in particular feel like the typical themes of media shortcut the connection that they want. They want the full spectrum of friendship. They want to watch belonging happen and to be brought into it. And that desire for connection, for the full spectrum of belonging, that is a thread that runs all the way back to the garden. To belong to the divine, to be friends with God. But we need a priest. We need a mediator. Someone who can keep the law perfectly and someone who can satisfy divine justice for our sin. And Hebrews is saying that on this mountain, 
Jesus is that priest whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is that talking about? Well, the blood of Abel, the innocent victim, cries justice. The blood of Jesus, the innocent victim, cries justice satisfied. On this mountain, Jesus is the ark of the covenant. The law is perfectly kept in him, and he satisfies God's demands for justice with the perfect sacrifice himself offered once for sin. His sprinkled blood covering all who believe in him. And do you remember what we're told in the Gospels when Jesus dies on the cross? The curtain in the temple was torn in two. Access to the presence of God opened through the death of the priest. But he didn't stay dead. In one of the most beautiful resurrection accounts, in John chapter 20, we see Mary Magdalene go to the tomb. She's weeping. She's lost the presence of her friend, Jesus. And she enters the tomb and sees two angels sitting where Jesus had been. One at his head and one at his feet. The exact placement of the two angels on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But his body wasn't there, and Mary is frantic. Where have you taken his body? But the resurrected Jesus stood before her and just said, Mary. And in an instant, she recognized him. The presence of God restored to her through the intimate uttering of a name. And presence restored to everyone who hears his voice. And then Hebrews continues in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. But how could we? How could we refuse when our longing to be brought into something bigger than ourselves is met with the very presence of God speaking to us in the tender voice of Jesus? How could it get any better than this? Believe it or not, this is just a taste. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, but not in its fullness. We've seen the gracious presence of the kingdom. Now let's look at the glorious permanence of the kingdom. He goes back to a comparison, verse 26. At that time, referring to Sinai, He shook the earth with his voice, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this shaking is talked about in the Old Testament as one of the markers of the day of the Lord, when the fullness of the kingdom will come. And the author explains it in verse 27. He says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now talking about the end of the world uh, can make some of us a little uncomfortable, but scripture certainly doesn't shy away from it. Jesus himself taught this, and it is good news for us in Jesus. Because only what is unshakable will stand, and God has laid a cornerstone in Zion, Jesus, That cannot be moved. And if you are in the cornerstone, if you are in Jesus through faith, you cannot be shaken. But hear me say this. Those things that shake you to your core, 
sickness, loneliness, the pain of prodigal children, fear for aging parents, dreams you've had to let die, injustice, evil, those things will crumble. They will not have the last word. Your God will consume them into oblivion. But this shaking is not just for removal, it's also for restoration. We've got to track down this quote that he says to really understand what our author is getting at. It comes from Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 verses 6 through 9 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The glory of the temple had been lost and God says, I'm going to restore every last bit of that. <clears throat> our small group has been sharing our stories with each other and we've been using a set of questions and one of the questions asks, how are you glorious? What are those unique things about you that need to be celebrated? And it's always the hardest question to answer. In fact, someone else usually has to answer it for the person because it's so much easier to talk about what we've lost, what we've been robbed of, how we are broken. But God says, I'm in the business of restoring glory. I'm going to shake the earth so that the glory of the nations comes in. We read in Revelation that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the New Jerusalem beautiful things about this life, beauty in creation, beauty in cultures, beauty in our stories. This is the stuff eternity will be made of. Your story redeemed, your glory on full display because your glory will be brought into something bigger, the presence of the glory of God. In Revelation, when we see those kings bringing their glory in, there's no temple. And in fact, the Lord had told the prophet Jeremiah, I'll bring you to Zion and they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. No temple, no ark, no restriction, not even a memory of what used to separate us from God. Just glorious presence forever. Therefore, Hebrews says, all of this culminates in maybe the easiest application ever. Therefore, in light of all this, be grateful and worship in all. Be grateful that in his love he has brought you to this mountain, the one that lasts. We don't get here through effort. We can't train. We can't condition. We can't ascend this mountain, but God in his grace has descended to us. So be grateful and worship in all, because his holiness demands 
worship. He is a consuming fire, but if you are in Jesus, the only thing he consumes is everything that keeps you from his presence. Now, when I started this sermon with the story about the man who claimed he climbed Mount Everest for the love of his wife, maybe some of you are thinking, <clears throat> well, if you loved her so much, why didn't you just not climb Everest three times? Uh, and this is exactly how his son felt, too. In a letter about his father, his son said, I would so much rather have known my father and to have grown up in the shadow of a legend, a hero as some people perceive him to be. His father was a legend, <clears throat> something incredibly big, but in a very real sense, he didn't belong to him. But in God, we have an immense father, father who creates mountains, who loves mountains. He does. You can tell the whole story of redemption through the mountains of Scripture but he has not left us behind longing for his presence. He has descended to make himself known. He moves mountains to be near us. He shook the earth and rolled the stone away and the resurrected son walked out of the grave. So through him we can worship God as children. Grateful that he's brought us along into his glorious kingdom, into his city that is coming where we will belong in the glorious presence of our Father forever. Let's pray. God, we have not come to Sinai, but we've come to Zion. <clears throat> not to a mountain of fear, but a mountain of grace and everlasting presence. We can't ascend it on our own. But Jesus did everything required and he extends to us the status of children. Would you help us come to you as sons and daughters in boldness?